edible, bakeable, ridiculously delicious. It's dope, and it's legit cookie dough. It's also the only kind of dope I encourage my listeners to enjoy. With delicious flavors like Ride or Die, Cookie Monster, my kid's favorite. I think because it's blue and extra delicious. You want s'more and fairy dust? You can buy yours online at dope.com. That's spelled D-O-U-G-H-P dot com. Buy dope, give hope. A portion of every purchase is donated to a mental health and addiction recovery nonprofit. At the time this airs, Kelsey and Dope have donated over 66,000 mental health treatment minutes. That's nothing to sneeze at. Founder Kelsey Morera is a Shark Tank alum, voted to the Forbes 30 Under 30, and a recovering alcoholic herself. She is the real deal. Kelsey was kind enough to share her story on the Dismantled Life podcast with me, and Kelsey's episode airs on November 13th. Listen anywhere you grab your podcasts. Treat yourself to some dope, support Kelsey Marrera, support dope, help drive Kelsey's donated mental health treatment contribution, and support the Dismantled Life podcast. Use the code DismantledLife for 10% off, buy some dope, and help make it a great day. Stay sober. 1% of all of our sales is going to a nonprofit that provides mental health care and substance abuse treatment, namely, you know, lots of support with opioid addiction and whatnot. When there was an opportunity to drink, I wanted to drink even if no one else did. You can choose to stop drinking even if it's not a daily routine for you. When it started, it was really hard for me to stop. I would always say, I'm just gonna have one or just gonna have two. But when we were drinking, it was always more than that. So if alcohol is not bettering your life, it's okay to stop drinking. Rolled into a really horrible night of which I can spare you some of the details, but you know, instead of like showering and getting ready, we we're all gonna meet up for dinner or something like that. And I was like, I'll just go to the bar. And like had like three Macallan 12s at the bar my name is Anthony Capazzoli, and this is the Dismantled Life Podcast, where we share stories of hope, love, and strength from the darkness of addiction into the sunlight of sobriety. These are stories from people just like us who have lived through the pain and made it. Thank you for coming on the show, Kelsey, and I'm going to leave your last name to you. So how do you say it again? Moreira. Moreira. Did I do yeah, that right? I you nailed right. it. I mean, that was it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Full confidence uh, mode. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And I'm so happy to have you because I'm excited to learn about your journey um, from addiction into sobriety and, and what life looks like today. But before we get into some of that, I just want to say Forbes 30 under 30, super impressive, super cool. Shark Tank, amazing. I've watched the segment a number of times. And then Dope, the only kind of dope we allow here on the podcast, the Dismantle yeah. Life podcast. So I was playing with that for a while when we started to talk. I'm like, how am I going to introduce that? But pretty yeah. cool stuff. We'll get into all that you know, as we go. But what, what did pre-addiction look like? Not as a doctor here, but I'm just asking because everyone's got a story before the story. And I'm wondering what that looks like for you. Yeah, before there was a problem. Yeah, exactly. And then would something lead into times. it? <laughs> yeah, I so I was born in Texas. Uh, my dad will be a lifelong Cowboys fan. You know, you never let that part of your life go. Never. Move out of uh, Texas when I was young and I was raised in Northern California. My parents got divorced when I was six. And I suppose things you reflect on more as your life changed over time. But, you know, always like wanted more attention, and more attention from the family. And I think a lot of like the acting out that started when I was in high school and whatnot was really like just to cry for attention, just like someone look at me and and pay attention to me. But yeah, growing up, I mean, I 
I used to bake all the time with my mom and my grandma. Uh, it's my Nana. So she and I would always make tons of recipes, love to do it as a kid. But um, I got an opportunity to start working at Intel when I was 16 years old. And I feel like my life kind of shifted from like being a kid and like playing and gymnastics and, and all this to like school and work and like be in it and be perfect and do it like to a hundred percent. You know, I was always really hard on myself to just be perfect all the time. And that's exhausting. Uh, still is sometimes I'm not great at letting that go, but that's been a trait through my life of just always really wanting to be like the best at whatever I did. And if I wasn't good at something, I just wouldn't do it anymore. Like I don't snowboard and it's because I suck at it and I'm just not going to do it. So I think from a young age, it was pretty clear that like I was, I had really high standards for myself and it's not even like a blame for my parents or anything. Like they would always be really encouraging and like supportive. And I was the one that was crying when I got a B. I thought I had failed if I got a B on a test, you know? So yeah, interesting, like a childhood to be kind of catapulted into corporate America. And I loved it. I loved like how cool it was to be learning stuff in say like marketing class when I was in college and I was doing the same thing, you know, at Intel. So in that like professional and uh, education life of mine, like things looked great. And I was like the star performer on everything I tried to do, but sort of in the yeah other sides of life, it was, I was leaning on alcohol to cope with the stress and a bit of like, I think what I thought I needed to do to fit in. Like I was a feeling a little weird that I was like all in at, at school. And then I, you know, senior year, I was leaving at like 1030 to go to my job at Intel and work till five. So I had like this really odd balance where I'm like, oh, I'm missing out on like what like the cool kids do in high school. Like I need to be a part of it and started going to parties. And, you know, the first time I drank blacked out was like, I guess the feeling of like, I didn't have to be perfect. That was like drinking was like, I wasn't, it wasn't like all on, you know, like the intensity was relieved and yeah, it's, I guess all of us have this like battle with alcohol because there's like good and bad from it. Yes, it was relaxing, but, uh, or like that you didn't have to be perfect, but then the next day you spend the day apologizing for the stupid, you know, (laughs) (laughs) what you said, what you did, of course. So I'm just curious was the, the your job at Intel was it an internship or did you have a legitimate corporate gig at Intel at 16? I mean, how did that even come about? And I just want to touch on that quickly because that's really interesting at 16. Yeah, so the um town that I was living in right next to Folsom, California and Intel has a site there. They were running a high school intern program at the time. So, it was a 3-month summer internship, but at the near end of the 3 months, they said, you know, Kelsey, would you like to stay on? Um through the school year. So kind of got this like weird opportunity, not part of the program anymore, but just to be a never end. Like it was kind of a joke that I was like the never ending intern. Cause it was just <laughs> on, you know, that it was part-time during the school years, full-time during the summers straight through until I graduated college and then just became a full-time employee at that point. Wow. That's, that's super impressive. And as far as the alcohol goes, I I'm with you on that. Like it started for me in eighth grade with, Fuzzy navels, you know, we would steal what you could steal, right, from cabinets and things like that. And, and it, it starts out fun. And I'm the type, unfortunately, that goes very deep, very, very quickly when that's what happened. This is really, this is your story. But I, I totally get that where you're taking the edges off or you're just, I hate to say it this way because it sounds so bad, but you're following the example of the people you're hanging out with. It's my disease. It's my issue. And I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying you're just, 
you're being a kid, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it. So I understand that completely. Yeah, like being a kid, but then also being like, why am I the kid that can't handle it? You know, like I just, <laughs> I was the one that was throwing up and, you know, they're holding the hair back or like getting carried home or something. And it's just, it was <laughs> like, why? I just couldn't really come to terms with that. Like, why was I always the one who, <laughs> I couldn't realize that I just was the problem, that I couldn't handle yeah. alcohol. But I just was like, this is so unfair. Like, why was I the one that got the ticket last night? Or why did I get hospitalized? The ambulance could have picked any of my friends. Why did I go? You know, and like in college, it was just like, like event after event. And I would say, oh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do that again. Like, I'm going to be better next time. I'll have water after every drink. And <laughs> I'm not going to be shots till after 10 p.m. Yeah. kind of bullshit. I totally beer get only, it. Yeah. Wine only, beer only. Like I had every, like I was like, surely there's some like scientific method I can use here to like get through all the combinations <laughs> and something will work for me. But at the end of the day, like nothing worked. And I went through, you know, so many years of like really upsetting people that I loved, like losing relationships, losing friendships. Um, I'm not close with many people from college, many people from high school, because I burned so many bridges, you know, it was like inevitable until there was the catatonic night where Kelsey destroyed a friendship or destroyed a relationship. Yeah, so it was a long journey to realizing that I really needed to stop. I hit like an ultimatum from a, a longtime boyfriend that I had when I was 21. And he said, you know, you need to like get this together or like we can't work. I had gotten drunk on the flight back from a business trip. I, you know, had extra time in the airport. So started drinking, almost missed my flight. Then it was like national red wine day. So there was a free glass of wine on the flight. Of course, <laughs> when I land, he's running late. So where do I go? The bar. Right to the bar. Yeah. And I tried to jump out of the car on the freeway home. I got really like angry. Oh. I was scratching him, like hitting him. And I was, you know, I'm like this tiny, like, I just love the world and I want to be like this positive little angel. And when I was drinking, it was like the devil comes out, you know, I was really not a yeah. nice person. Like I would like pick fights at bars and stuff. And I'm five foot two, by the way, you may not be able to see that. <laughs> so I was that like wound up tornado girl at the bar yeah. yelling at everyone for no reason. Uh, you want to fight? Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, like, no. It's like for the first I want to know what you want to drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the bartender. Um, right. Yeah, it was, it was awful. So that night, uh, you know, getting back from that flight and how bad that was, and he's like, you know, you need to get it together. And I said, okay, I'm done. I'm going to stop drinking. So at 21, I stopped drinking for four months. And I wrote in my journal, I still have like the journal entry from close to the end of those four months where I was like, oh, I feel better than I ever have. Like I have so much clarity. I just can't wait until I can have one drink. You know, I was like right. so hell bent on this idea that I was going to be able to figure it out. That like now that I've cleansed my soul, like suddenly when alcohol <laughs> hits me again, I'll be different. And as you can imagine, it was not different. right. Yeah. No. No, in fact, it's usually for at least for me, if I did take the breaks, I would hit it as hard after the break, whether it was the drinking or the cocaine or whatever it was. Yeah. And I would hit it so hard after the break because I was making up for lost time. And then my tolerance, people don't realize this, but even if you're as hardcore oh, as I was, yeah, it, it goes away a bit. So yeah. you think you can take it and you can't. You're rounding third and you end up yeah. in the bleachers because you can't stop. Yeah, I was it's crazy. Like when I first started drinking again after that those four months, and you know, four months isn't even like doesn't sound like that long of a time, but it is long enough to change your tolerance. So I was oh, yeah. literally having like half a glass of wine and like half of a beer. And then it was the first business trip after that. I think it took me like 
three weeks of like having, you know, some drinks and being able to monitor it and really controlled and everything. And then I went on a business trip and, you know, it was just done again. I was in China on this incredible opportunity with Intel to go to all these different manufacturers and riding alongside a, a VP who had kind of taken me under his wing to, to be a part of this trip. And I just like, just blew it, you know, with the nights out. And yet I'm like up presenting my small business program for tablets that we have the next day. And like, and, and like trying to do it with like a pounding migraine hangover, like throwing up in the bushes before we go inside, <laughs> just a mess, you know, all over again. So yeah, it was um, a hard learning experience to be like, Oh shit, I really don't have this under control, but just kind of pushed it down again. And it took me another like three years from there to, um, really realized that something was going to have to change. How long did you ride that wave before you said, all right, enough is enough. This isn't really a gladiator school, but just in just a sense of volume. Were we talking like every day, um, just weekend bin drinking? I mean, what kind of scope was that? And then when did you kind of hit the brakes and say, I need to just, I need to put this away now? Yeah. So I think one important thing is like more people need to see examples of like, you can get sober, even if you don't wake up and have a shot of vodka in the morning. Like you can choose to stop drinking, even if it's not a daily routine for you. When I drank, I drank to excess. When there was an opportunity to drink, I wanted to drink, even if no one else did 10 a.m. having breakfast on a Friday or something, you know, and it was like, I would be like, oh, should we have mimosas? You know, it's just like always like, like in it to win it, like ready for, you know, if we ever went out during the week, I would drink, but it was really like just when it started, it was really hard for me to stop. I would always say, I'm just going to have one or just going to have two. But when we were drinking, it was always more than that. So I never drank like by myself. I had this weird, it's almost like I had some weird intuition that I would not be able to handle it. And I I felt like, I don't know, like, like guilty or like someone was going to catch me or I had maybe a fear of like what I would do if I got that drunk alone because people were always there to care for me. Like someone was always there to pick me up when when stuff happened. And yeah, like I was never crossing that line of like drinking when I was alone. Like if my then boyfriend was going out of town or something, I would only drink if I went out to meet with a friend or something. But at the house, I had this weird like I can't I'm not allowed to like touch it kind of thing. Yeah. So, no, I, I guess it because it keeps it out of the at least for me, it, it kept it out of the closet for me where I I never felt that I was truly a ramp. I was a rampaging alcoholic, but I felt like I wasn't if I didn't do that, like that one person did or whatever it would be. And if I drank socially with other people, but that for me spiraled into, you know, drinking alone at five in the morning, doing tons of cocaine, <laughs> drinking a ton. And, and it just went, it went horseshit. I mean, it went terrible, but I, I totally get when you put up with. I call safety nets, like alcoholic safety nets. Yeah. But I also think it's really interesting that you point out that being an alcoholic or drinking compulsively doesn't always mean, like you pointed out, waking up and slamming half a bottle of vodka. It could mean just compulsively drinking or inappropriately drinking, whatever that means. Doing anything that you wouldn't want to do normally, right? Like I was so tired of doing things that this Kelsey wouldn't want to do, doing insane. And it, it's kind of like, if alcohol is not bettering your life, it's okay to stop drinking. And I think that like a lot of stigmas around being an alcoholic, or you got to get a DUI to be an alcoholic, or you got to like lose custody of your kids to be an alcoholic. It's like, we can stop it before then. Like if more of society would talk about just being able to acknowledge that alcohol is not bettering your life, like and saying, is it worth it? Or, you know, I don't like when I do these things when I drink. So 
is it worth it to drink? You know, we all know it's like a poison. So if you're on a health kick, like, is it good for you? Stay away. <laughs> Doesn't help. <laughs> and then the binge eating afterwards, like, I don't eat pizza puffs if I'm not wasted. Yeah, I <laughs> you mean, know, only on Saturdays, but like, <laughs> only on Saturday. I have to admit, being a Chicago guy, I there's places that have amazing pizza puffs, and I still do eat them. Money, health, uh, like, there's a bunch of other good things that come from stopping. Yeah. But yeah, I think just destigmatizing that, like, you don't have to be seven days a week chugging a bottle to say that you probably should stop. I was, you know, I think when I, when I finally got sober, I stopped and I wrote like a list of the events, like the big incident nights. There's like 37, like, Oh my God, nights that no one should ever want to touch alcohol again after they have one of those nights. Right. And there were 37 for me. It took me a long time because my job was so great because my grades were so great because I had a relationship and you know, everything seemed like, but look, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. Yeah. yeah, the hospital, that was fine. Like it was, it was really hard. I feel like society just makes you think you don't have a problem unless you lost your job. And so there's a lot of excuses that get formed. And I'm here to tell you that like, your life can get a hell of a lot better, even if you still got your job and all this, if underneath stuff's not working and you got 37 events on a list that you should stop drinking, just stop. And I think that most people listening should know that I, I think most alcoholics are what I'll call unknown alcoholics. And what I mean by that is everything else seems perfectly normal, but they're just shit faced all the time. My dad was like that. He, and I love my father. He's passed away and this isn't, I'm not shit talking, but he would drink so much that it was weird if he was sober, like that threw me off. Mm. Like, so what I'm saying yeah. is most people live in a state of inebriation most of the time, or they're just always two or three drinks in a little bit dusty. And that is symptomatic of alcoholism, I think. And you have to define that for yourself. But I, I would agree if everything else is perfect, but you're still sneaking drinks in the bathroom yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Problems. Or when you do drink, there's, you know, things that you wish didn't happen, happen. It's, it's okay to say enough's enough. So exactly. And so what led you to say, all right, I've had it, I'm putting it down uh, because um, I'm curious. Cause it, was it for me, it, I, ended up almost dead in the hospital for 11 days. And, and I, that was thankfully a very important moment for me. And I needed, I hit rock bottom very hard and I dragged myself across it for a long time. Not everybody does that. Did you have that kind of a rock bottom moment or was it just a day because you're hardworking and an overachiever in a positive way and, and all that you're like, I, this is, I'm going to take it on like I would take on any other task and just leave it behind me. Yeah. I wish it didn't go down on a ball of fire, but <laughs> just magically woke up and was like, I'm good. Let me admit. My I'm fine. You know, I think I've always had a really hard time saying that I did anything wrong, you know, kind of the perfectionist side, like being able to admit that like I had a problem or I wasn't I wasn't good at drinking, right? Like bottom line, I don't like things that I'm not good at. It turns out I'm not good at drinking, responsibly um, right. at least. So, uh, you know, I think it was going to take like a firm event to do it. And it's sad because mm -hmm. like I said, there are 37 to choose from, 36 before the final one. So I, I had a lot of opportunities to realize it. But um, yeah, finally, like the enough was enough when I'd actually gone a period of maybe like three months without a really bad incident, like without a nothing on my list for a few months. And then I was going on a trip to Barcelona, another business trip with Intel. And when I got to the Marriott, they're like, Oh, welcome, Kelsey. Here's your welcome gift, like platinum rewards that are like bottle of wine. And it's like 10 a.m. local time. Of course, I have the bottle of wine. And this was like, this was a kind of break in my mode. Like I actually drink 
that wine alone because I'm like, well, I'm going to go to the pool. So like I can have some wine. I'm in Barcelona. I got here a day early and I can I can lose some vacation. Right. There's always some excuse of why to like behave differently from what I could do when, say, my then boyfriend was watching. If we were out together, he knows I have a problem drinking. Sometimes I could be like, oh, he's going to know if I asked for another one or he's going to know if I've had too many or something, you know, like you had all these other guards. And then when you're out in a different scenario, not to mention other coworkers are like, oh, I'm away from my kids. And like, you know, they're already <laughs> with party and stuff. So I went up to the pool and um, met up with some coworkers and, you know, had a sangria like the size of my head, gin and tonics. And then, uh, yeah, just rolled into a really horrible night of which I can spare you some of the details. But, you know, instead of like showering and getting ready, we we're all going to meet up for dinner or something like that. And I was like, I'll just go to the bar. And like had like three Macallan 12s at the bar instead of getting ready for dinner and then went out and, you know, I was a notorious like manipulator when I was drinking. So I ended up convincing my group of coworkers that I was with. And this is what they told me after that. I knew this other group of guys and that I was just going to go with them and I'd be fine. And you guys can leave. And they left and I was, you know, I, I don't know these people. And I woke up in a strange apartment at like three 30 in the morning and no clue where I was, no clue where my phone was, no idea. And, you know, had to make that call again to my boyfriend at the time and be like, oh my gosh, I don't know what happened. Like my life's falling apart. And that it was the end of that relationship. You know, we'd been together for four years, but it was like enough was enough. And I just had this like, this is it kind of moment in my head of like, I can't do this anymore because I can't have a relationship with anyone else or myself that's going to be healthy and long lasting if I keep doing this stuff. So I, my next call, I think this was like Skype was still around. I Skyped my, around, sorry, Skype. Zoom took over. Okay. Anyways, (laughs) I I Skyped my Nana um, who was 21 years sober when she passed away. Uh, alcoholism runs in my family um, on both sides. And I told her like, I'm done. I'm done. And I'm ready to stop drinking. And it was like, she knew that call was going to come at some point, you know, she had written me letters during college about how worried she was about me. And I used to just, you know, you just can't even take it. It's like, come on, no, crumpled up, put it in a drawer. I'm totally fine. What are you talking you about? Yeah. Have this like, you know, grandmother guilt trip and I'm going to be different yeah. and it's not going to be like it was for you. And, you know, just almost like a shame, I was really ashamed that uh, she had to see, she's like a fortune teller. She knew what was going on with me and look at what she was, had to do with her life and, and that I was going to eventually have to find that path. And uh, I did. And I went and found an English speaking AA meeting that morning in Barcelona. And um, yeah, and I haven't had a drink of alcohol since. So I feel like I am a stubborn you know, put my like tooth in and I'm just going to do it. And when I finally was like, I'm going to freaking do this. And I, yeah. you know, everyone else who had been along with the rides of all these nights, they'd heard shades of that. Right. But like, it's not going to happen again. And then it happened again. And it's not going to happen again. So I think when I finally was like, I am done, I'm going to stop drinking full on. I think everyone was a bit like, Oh, we'll see. And right. You know, aside from oh, yeah. she really like, I think she, could like feel that it was different and she was really supportive the whole way. And she passed away just after I hit one year sober. So um, she gave me this necklace that my papa had given her for her first year of sobriety. It's like diamond heart necklace. So that's awesome. Stuff to cherish and really cool that she got to see that. And she would just be 
beside herself if she could see what happened with my life from there. Um, I hadn't started dope just yet when she passed away, but I had a little bakery that I started. because when I got sober, I was like, Oh my God, I'm like, I've never hung over and I can follow my passion. So (laughs) like crazy. And I used to send her some treats from that, that company when I had started this little bakery in Oregon, but she would have loved dope. She would be like hysterical that I made it on Forbes 30 under 30, that I was on Shark Tank. We used to watch episodes of that together. You know, it's very surreal, but um, a gift of having made this decision. I agree with you about the seismic shift. Like you, people don't realize that it could be the tiniest moment where you just decide that enough is enough. It doesn't have to be, fortunately like me, we're jumping out of a plane without a parachute rock bottom hitting. Um, <laughs> Cause I, I hit really hard, man. Like I, I did some damage. Thankfully my wife and my kids have been supportive. I've been clean about three years now of everything. And I'm so no smoking, no drinking, no cocaine. And it's changed everything. Like you said, the amount of time that I have now, I literally sometimes have to go what am I going to do now next in a good way? Because I have, I, you, you literally have every moment of your day. I wake up every single morning at 4.45 and enjoy every minute of my day. I'm not hungover and all that good stuff. And, but that seismic shift where you just say that I've done, I'm done. And for me, it was a really big moment. But for so many people, it could be the tiniest thing. And my real commitment, like you with your grandmother, with um, that that gift of sobriety for a year. I, I also had a moment where I was walking and I, I didn't know what to do when I first gave it all up. I made it to the hospital. The doctors are like, I hope everything is in order. You're not going to make it. Make sure that your insurance is good to go. Not to pay them, but for my children and stuff to leave because they were I was leaving them behind because I was going to die. And I made it. Somehow I made it. I, I don't know, but I did. And I just, me too. Thank you. And I just started walking. So I took at first a somatic approach where I just got, cause I was 30 pounds heavier. I was in terrible, my blood pressure. I was a mess medically speaking. And I just started walking and exercising. And this is your story, not mine, but I, one of the moments for me where I'm like, I kind of broke down on my walk. I could barely walk a mile. <clears throat> and it was a rainy, cloudy day. The skies opened up and a little beam of sunshine came down. And I, I really do believe that that was all of my loved ones in heaven, my grandparents, my father, and everyone giving me a little hug via the sunshine to say, you can make it. Cause I didn't know what to do. I'm like, how am I going to make it? Because so many times I had failed. And just that little subtle difference where you just decide that enough is enough. And you take and do all of the work and the effort to get there. And that's the beauty of it. And I mean, and I'd like to turn it back to you, but I think it's amazing. I mean, everything you've done and Dope, by the way, I think is a great name. I, I loved it. I was trying to figure out how do I play with it with uh, promoting the segment. And I'm going to use it in lots of fun ways to promote the segment once we go live. But how great is that? I mean, being on Shark Tank is amazing. Forbes 30 under 30. Like, first of all, can I ask about the Shark Tank? Was it just crazy intense? I mean, how was the moment? Was it, do you remember it clearly or was it like a blur? Yeah. Luckily I wasn't drunk, so I remember it. <laughs> that was super cool too. It was my three year. It was filmed like the day before my three year anniversary, three year sobriety anniversary. So that was like a really cool you know, as soon as I got sober, like the universe just kept opening doors. Like when you're doing, I think this is sobriety or not, but when you're doing what you're passionate about and what makes you come alive, doors that are supposed to open, open right when they need to. And like at every turn with dope, when I've been like, oh my God, like this, this is, it's, we're going to fail. Like, you know, it's going under like exactly what I need, like opens up. And I just think like putting the right energy out in the world, like good things will come your way. And Shark Tank was an incredible example of that. Like I, 
it's like 0.002% chance that you make it on the show. Like they air, you know, I forget the numbers now. I think there's like 120 entrepreneurs that are going to air in a season or something. And there's like 50,000 that apply. So it's a really small chance that you are the coolest, you know, even cookie dough, for example, I think they had like 13 other cookie dough companies try out that season and they chose dope. You know, it's really cool to have been selected for that um, just for the recognition that like I'm doing something different, you know, and I think our focus on mental health and addiction recovery and trying to raise awareness as all the ways that we can, you know, financially and just informatively, um, I, I think is a, a different way of doing business. And, you know, we sell cookie dough, but it's just a cookie dough is a commodity, right? You know, I could be selling anything. I'm really trying to make an impact with a platform. And by way of that, we sell some delicious stuff and, you know, nostalgia filled goodness that you can take, take a bite of or bake. And, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff, but I think out of the core people who uh, become customers and stay loyal spoon lickers with us is because we're doing something a little more than just cookie dough. So Shark Tank was a surreal thing. And before the doors open, it's like more nerves than you've ever felt in your whole life. I was going to pee my pants. And that was the only thing I was certain of. I didn't know what my pitch was anymore. And then the door opens and I hit my mark and I, I did my pitch. And um, I'm really proud of myself. It was very cool to watch it and be like, you go girl, you know, like like, some real powerful people, like basically telling you that they don't like cookie dough personally (laughs) and you just (laughs) held your own, you know, and I really knew my numbers, like knew the business and knew what I wanted. And, um, I was really proud of it. Yeah. I love your approach with the cookie dough in terms of the name dope. I dig that. And I think it's a cool play on what you're supporting as well, by the way, I, I, I really, really love that. And I know that it's intentional, obviously. And then I love the spoon liquors approach in a fun way because let's, I dig it. And the cookie, the cookie monster one is it, my kids. It's so cool. I mean, my kids are like, can we get that dad on my cow or something? That's awesome. And uh, well, give it's your great. followers a discount code. I'll send you that. So you can put it out with the episode. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. It's been fun. And you know, um, the name dope, it's funny because like it is very aligned now, as you mentioned, like 1% of all of our sales is going to a nonprofit that provides mental health care and substance abuse treatment, namely, you know, lots of support with opioid addiction and whatnot. And though that wasn't my personal journey and I did name the company dope for like, it's cool. Like it's it's legit cookie dough. It's really cool. It has played nicely together that like, um, you know, some people joke like, oh, I'm hooked on this dope now. So, you know, yeah, like, sure. I feel like for me with alcohol, I replaced a lot of it with sugar. I feel like I replaced a bit of like what I was doing in, in drinking with baking and really like, yeah, I'll have that slice of chocolate cake after dinner because I can because I didn't just have 400 calories in a glass of red wine. So I think the big thing's just like, everybody's got to have a vice and it's kind of like, this can be, you know, this can be a healthy dope decision. Through the show, part of my giving back was helping others through listening to let people know that there's lots of us just like one another. You're not alone, even though you might feel like you're alone every moment. But what I'm selfishly discovering is the show does more for me than I think it does for my listeners. And I'm kind of feeling bad about it. I think uh, it does a lot for everybody. That's awesome. And it's like, it's exactly why I am so open with my story too. I felt like when I first got sober, particularly in my age range, right? I was 24 at the time. So getting sober and feeling like, am I the only one going through this was a horrible feeling, you know, and couldn't find any examples of somebody like me who decided to stop drinking. So I feel like 
a responsibility, I guess, to be like a, a beacon to say, it's okay. This was what happened to me. And, you know, I think people always try to make their life look so shiny and perfect and awesome. And there's, there's never been any like tarnishes on it. And it's like, to hell with that. We got to break it up. I want people to feel more comfortable talking about what's happened in their life to them or loved ones and just be more open because we all have a story. It's so wild if you start to talk, you know, and just even in the business world, like because of what we talk about with dope, I'll start a meeting with someone who otherwise would have never been able to share that their daughter is going through X, Y, and Z, you know, but you open up these doors for people to just feel a little bit more comfortable with what is societally like less awesome, you know, in people's eyes. Uh, and yeah, shake that up and make them feel hurt. Like feels nice, I think, to be able to share what's going on in your life when you're otherwise like trapped in your little home unit and don't tell anybody outside of it what's going on. And people need to talk, you know, not, I'm not a therapist, but like talk to me, <laughs> you know? You gotta get it out there. And I think that part of it is not being ashamed of it. And and people have to realize, maybe shift the paradigm a little and say, I, I have to say, I think people in recovery, fighting fight and winning every day, because it's a struggle, are badasses. I mean, think about how much shit we've been through and we're here now helping others. And that there's a there's a there's a superhero power in that that is you you can't fake it. You you just can't fake it. And sometimes all people need is a little push in a good way. And that's what the show's about. And and thank you for, for being a part of it. I really appreciate it. So awesome to meet you. Thanks for doing it.